This episode of the Flush Podcast is brought to you by Walton's Aluma Trailers, North Dakota Tourism, Federal Ammunition, Onyx Hunt, and by Nutrisource Pet Foods. My guest today is Nate Freshour. Nate is a dedicated upland bird hunter that set a goal for himself and his dog of baking all 10 species of upland birds in Minnesota. Yep, he added them up to 10. We'll dig into his story and discuss why setting goals can help you make the most of your hunting season this year. Welcome to another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'm your host. Brandon Morton is our producer, and he's not sitting here right now. Nate, do you see Brandon anywhere? <laughs> no, it's just you and me. It's just the two of us. It's uh, we're in this room, and normally he's got this big fancy <laughs> recording set and sound effects if he wants to, and it feels all official. And today we're sitting in our conference room with just this little handheld recording device. I take this on the road. I'll be on the road next week, the week after that, the week after that, and the week after that. So a lot of podcasts will be coming up without Brandon. He's on vacation. He earned it. He deserves it. He works really hard, and we appreciate him. But he will be getting this episode out to you somehow, some way this week, and I'm grateful for that. But we're recording without him. Um, Three, four, what, what are we, four days into the pheasant hunting season in Minnesota? Five yeah, days? Yeah, I, th I think five. Five days? Okay. Did you pheasant hunt on I, opening weekend? I did not get out opener day, but um, on Sunday, I took a buddy out who had never been pheasant hunting before. He's from northern Minnesota in Ely. Okay. And uh, obviously, he came down. Yeah. Well, he was at a wedding on Saturday. Okay. So... I said, stop on by. He needed to pick something up at my place. And I said, stop on by and we can go out hunting. And I was like, do you want to go grouse hunting or do you want to go pheasant hunting? Because I live in the metro area and it's... Central Minnesota. Yep. So uh, it's it's about an hour, hour and a half to either or for me okay. to get to either one. And he said, I've never shot a pheasant before. And I kind of winced a little bit because I was like, oh, this close. Second day of opener. I don't know if we can do it, but we uh, we got out and he he got one bird, one rooster, and we were both we were both pretty stoked. About nice, that. nice. Well, I've I've heard from quite a few friends that did make it out on opening weekend, and the reports in Minnesota are similar to North Dakota, to South Dakota. the The birds are on the landscape this year. Hunting season is just kicking butt. Yeah, we I mean, saw we saw at least. Within a couple of hours of us hunting, we saw at least three roosters and a handful of hens. So I, I was happy for an area that gets a little more pressure than, mm -hmm. than most of the further you get away from the, the metro area. Sure. Um, so I, I mentioned this at the top of the show, and you have counted up 10 species of birds that you, uh, upland birds that you've harvested in Minnesota for yourself and for your dog. And we'll get into that story and why you did it in the first place yeah. um, and what you learned along the way. And are there really 10 upland bird species? Uh, probably not. <laughs> probably not. But you, you counted them though yeah, and you yeah. said 10. Yeah. There's, there's a few on the list that I, that I, I wouldn't really recommend people to like 
seek or anything, but they come up kind of as like a, if you're hunting this upland slash waterfowl, maybe a better way to migratory, migratory, definitely for sure. Um, but I, I included two of the rail, uh, species, which we have are, uh, Sora rail and Virginia rail. Okay. And they're, I would always see them when I was snipe hunting. So I, I took them. I don't know if it definitely wasn't clean dog work. I think I had clean dog work on one bird. Um, and by clean dog work, I mean pointed and shot and retrieved. Okay. Uh, the rest of them, it, it, it seems like they just flush when they want to flush, not even necessarily in front of a dog or some, a lot of times when you're just walking by them, they'll flush. But, uh, I did count them because my dog retrieved them. Sure. Yeah. Um, a lot of time. Well, this conversation actually is is because you reached out to me um, to invite us to go on a snipe hunt with you in Minnesota. And then we got to talking. Yeah. And there's a lot more to your story that I found interesting. And I thought today's conversation might be good. It's still early in the season. Mm-hmm. And there's enough time for people to set their own goals, you know, and achieve their own goals. And so I think we'll get into your story and what you learned along the way. But um, you're, you live in central Minnesota right now. Mm -hmm. You're not from here. Where are you from? Originally from Florida. uh, But I moved to Minnesota in southern Minnesota, Albert Lee area when I was five years old. Um, And then after college, I moved, I stayed in the the central Minnesota metro area. Always have dogs your whole life? Myself personally, not always having dogs, but we always had dogs growing up, yes. Uh, My sister, who actually kind of sparked me back into dogs, um, had a German short hair pointer, and now she currently um, has German short hair pointers and breeds them and hunt tests them and hunts them. Okay, really? Nice. Uh, Is she local here? Yeah, she's in the northern Minnesota, uh, north metro area, Stacy area. Okay, gotcha. So that's where your dog came from, or different? No, no. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I personally chose a small Monsterlander. Uh, Why? From things that I read initially, it was uh, their disposition in the home, more so. Uh, they're, they have a reputation of being calm, having an off switch, but then once you're in the field, they kind of turn it on, turn it on and and go after it. Um, and they're a little bit smaller than, uh, some German short hairs. I mean, you see German short hairs ranging from size to being like 35 pounds up to Mm -hmm. 75 pounds sometimes. But, uh, I, I was wanting a smaller dog at the time I was living in a town home as well. So it was important for me to have something that was a little more balanced. The coat does get a little frustrating early in the spring or early in the fall with all the burrs and everything oh, else sure. and mud and everything, but it's long uh, hair. yeah, long hair, but my opinion, they look a little bit better, but <laughs> I know when Daisy over here passed out behind you, you're like, gosh, she doesn't have much hair. And I look at her sometimes after the hunt like recently. I mean, she's beat up. I mean, she yeah. is so beat up and yeah. we're just barely getting into the hunting season. She's been out there a lot, but she's 
cut up all over the place. She doesn't have that protection like some of yeah. those thick hair dogs. I mean, the the best the best protection for a dog is a nice dense coat. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what breeders strive for, uh, have a nice dense coat on dogs so they do have a little bit more uh, protection, especially in those critical points on like the, the front of their, their, their legs and uh, their underside where they're brushing up against everything all the time. But yeah, if it, it, it gets hard when, when you have a, a dog that doesn't have much of a coat. We, ha- we also have a, my wife and I have a Bracco as well. That's three years old. And, and he, how old is your, he turned dog? six today. Okay. Oh, happy birthday. <laughs> yeah, bud. yeah. Well, are you going to celebrate with him today? Yeah, I need to get something for him. I, you know, after every hunting, like a grouse or a woodcock <laughs> or a pheasant, you mean? Well, we're going through a home renovation right now, so I'm like, after work, I'm like working at home. Mm. But um, normally, I do You're try to, to do get that after during the off season. You know, I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I talked to your wife about this. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, no, it it it's just the timing that planned to happen out because everything's so you know, with, I don't know if you've done any home renovations recently, but it's just, it's gnarly. Yep. But, um, yeah, the, I kind of lost track of what we were Oh, going we were just on. talking about celebrating your, your yeah, sixth I'll, birthday today. After every hunting day, I'd normally stop, make a trip through Dairy Queen and get a few pup cups. Oh, nice. But I may, I may do something like that tomorrow. I'll be getting out a little bit after work if I can... If I can uh, get all my stuff wrapped up at work. Well, a couple, and- couple. I want to say maybe two years ago already, I had Nick Martin on this podcast. Nick on social media is Iowa bird chaser. And he also, I don't know if, if I don't know how the conversation came about, but I found it interesting that he set a goal to shoot a pheasant in every county in Iowa. And I think it was on public land. I don't remember for mm-hmm. sure if it's all public land or not, but either way, it's a goal that he set for himself. You mentioned a few weeks ago when we were talking about snipe hunting, you you followed up that conversation by saying, "Hey, I just I just uh, got my tenth bird, and it was a spruce, spruce grouse. grouse. Yeah. yeah, and the tenth bird on your list. So you accomplished your goal. When did you set that goal, and why? I don't really know an exact date. I think it was a, a handful of things that had happened. Um, one thing that was really eye-opening to me was uh, one of my first hunting trips with my dog was down to Kansas, and we went quail hunting. It was with my sister and uh, a friend of ours, and we went down quail hunting. We were really successful at that, and... I always like looking at different states' regs books and seeing like all the birds you can hunt, their seasons, their limits, and and I I also like other small game as well, like rabbits. And I noticed that they had jackrabbits, you know, those big ones. And I was yeah. like, I want to get one of those too. <laughs> and I went down there. We only got quail, which was phenomenal. It was yeah. it was so much fun. Uh, Bob White Quail. If any if if any of you haven't done it, I strongly recommend it. Mm-hmm. Especially if you have a pointing dog. There's just nothing else. The like explosion it. of a bunch of and tennis ball size bumblebees yeah, just going and in trying every to direction. pick one out yeah. and even having nerves get to you and you just kind of 
shoot at the whole flock and you don't even hit one down. Isn't that it's amazing just, how I, you think you're going to take five down it. in a shot and you hit none? I don't understand it. <laughs> Always pick a bird. Pick your bird. Shoot that. Sometimes you may get another one, but don't flock shoot. It never yeah, goes well. Yeah. But that was that was super cool. Didn't get a rabbit. And then I started... Um, we also saw some prairie chickens out there as well, which was really cool. Didn't get a shot off on any, any of them. Uh, but I got invited from a friend that also has a small Munsterlander to his camp where he invited some other people that he knew that had small Munsterlanders. And his camp is located in the upper northwestern portion of Minnesota, which has sharptail grouse. Sure. And that was kind of eye-opening. And we... I got to shoot sharp tail in Minnesota and I was, I knew that they were there, uh, it, within Minnesota, but I didn't know that it was that attainable. Like, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't seem. Why, why was that surprising to you? Because growing up in Southern Minnesota, my idea of bird hunting was essentially pheasant hunting. Uh, and I had gone out a few times, uh, Actually, the first upland bird that I shot was a woodcock while I was pheasant hunting, which was really cool. Um, but it just didn't—it just didn't seem like something that I don't know. I just didn't have the 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 idea that I could do it yeah. or that it was possible. It kind of just opened up this like, whoa, yeah, a different world here. Yeah, and then later and. I wouldn't have ever been able to do that without the help of somebody that was experienced with it. Like, Why do um, you say that? Because I didn't know the habitat. I didn't know what I was looking for. I didn't know um, what area they, they're actually concentrated in. Because you can get a, a map and say, they're here. But if you go to some of those areas, they're not there. They're, it's just maybe not the right habitat, maybe not any habitat at all, lack of habitat, or mm-hmm. it's all private land. Mm-hmm. So without having somebody else that really knew the birds, it it, it becomes difficult to, to do it on your own. Um, I bet now, though. Now, looking back, it, it's a little easier to identify. And I later went up trying to find them on my own. And I did have some success finding them. And I also ran into... A jackrabbit in Minnesota. <laughs> That's not on your 10 list though, right? It wasn't. But I did previously complete shooting three rabbit species in Minnesota, <laughs> which is the only thing that I call my Minnesota slam is the rabbit slam. The rabbit slam. Yeah. <laughs> hairs and they're not really all rabbits. But yeah, I got jackrabbit, snowshoe, and cottontail. Cottontail. But that opened up my eyes even more thinking, well... Let me look at the. Let me reevaluate this because there's prairie chickens in Minnesota. There's mm-hmm. sharp-tailed grouse in. Or well, I knew there. I found out there were sharp-tailed grouse. There's spruce grouse, and um, some of these other birds. As you look at the regulations, and all I, right, let's break yeah. it down. Ring-neck so, pheasant. Yep, ring-neck pheasant. There's a Hungarian partridge. Yep. Uh, there's Woodcock. Woodcock, rough grouse, rough grouse, spruce grouse. It's five. Sharp-tailed uh, grouse is sharp-tail six. Sharp-tailed grouse, prairie chicken. Yep, that's seven. There's snipe. Snipe. And then I included two. Then I included two uh, rail. rails. 
You could also include dove, which I've done as well, but... Some people do classify dove yeah. as an upland bird, and it's kind of one of those... Yeah. And I guess technically uh, turkey. Yeah, turkey, but I could not I could not <laughs> hunt that. You can't hunt those with dogs in Minnesota. Uh, I know there's some other states that you can, but I was really focused on Minnesota. You, and you also mentioned you're really focused on what you can do with your dog. Exactly. Yes. Uh, it, I've spent so much time training my dog um, through the NAVDA system. I've also done some AKC hunt tests and some other German tests with my dog. And spending so much time training with non-natural scenarios. Um, what do you mean by non-natural? Meaning that you're... You're planting or, birds. You're, yep. you have, you're using a dispatch game. And your, your primary goal is to get performance out of your dog on a specific day. Uh, depending on what the test is, whether it's pointing mm-hmm. within NAVDA, there's, um, there's water work and, and tracking and that, that sort of thing. Uh, and doing all that kind of, it's not fake because it's definitely beneficial. It mm-hmm. gets you to a point where you can trust your dog in very many scenarios. And, uh, like retrieving a pheasant that drops into the water for me personally. Like that's very important for my dog to go out, get that bird for me and bring Mm -hmm. it back. Especially if it's a late season bird, because I'm not getting in the water. Right. Um, I'm not that big of a waterfowl person, so I don't utilize all those skills as much, but your dog could handle a waterfowl hunt like a lap probably. He definitely doesn't prefer it because we haven't done a lot of it. Like sitting in a blind is not his forte. <laughs> he <laughs> Nor wants to, is that white rocket there. He wants out. to move. He wants to, he wants to move constantly. And having him sit and stay and wait for birds is, is not the best for him. And maybe it's a temperament thing. Maybe it's just me not training well enough for, for those types of scenarios. Well, I'm sure you've learned quite a bit about yourself and your dog through the training process, but what, uh, take us back to deciding how you wanted to approach training your dog. Um, so I got my dog through a breeder and, uh, he was, uh, one of the picks to be a stud dog in the future. So they required um, a NAVDA natural ability test and uh, some confirmation stuff and, and health checks before that happened. And that's kind of what started me on it. After we were successful at the natural ability test, I really wanted to see how far I could get my dog in that system. And we got up to the invitational. Didn't pass it, but we... we we passed the utility test at a fairly young age for the dog. He was just under two when he completed his prize one utility, um, which is not very common. It's not uncommon, I would say, but it's not the most common. And uh, it was more so just to, to see what I could do, how, if, if I could train a dog to that level and, Without really any, did you have any training experience going into this? No, not really. Uh, my sister helped me a lot in the initial portions of it. And then getting together with local NAP, NAFTA chapters was 
critical. So central Minnesota, where you live, where did you go? What was your NAVDA chapter? Uh, Minnesota chapter is the local one. There's a couple other ones. Minnesota chapter is a very large chapter. It's, I think it's one of the biggest in the NAVDA, uh, within NAVDA International. It's got to be, I think it's over 300 members, which is really high. But that being said, we only have three chapters within the state. So there's the Southern Minnesota chapter. And then, well, the St. Croix chapter uses a lot of the Minnesota training grounds, but they're technically Wisconsin. And then uh, the Minnesota chapter, which is essentially from Southern Minnesota all the way up to uh, Virginia is, is some of the training grounds up there. Hunting season is here, and North Dakota is one of my favorite places to spend a fall day. That's because North Dakota is a bird hunting paradise. You can hunt both waterfowl and upland birds all in the same day, and North Dakota has approximately 700,000 acres of private land open to public walk-in hunting. This year, North Dakota has a population estimate of 3.4 million breeding ducks, which is 38% above the long-term average. And their prairie pothole region is smack dab in the middle of the central flyway. Their spring water index also came way up, over 600% from last year's drought. The habitat on the landscape looks great, and bird reports are strong throughout the state. With a little scouting, you just might find yourself in a field surrounded by wild flushing pheasants, sharp-tailed grouse, and Hungarian partridge. Plan a legendary bird hunt this fall in North Dakota at legendarynd.com. I love my dog, and like you, I always want to make sure that she has what she needs to stay healthy year-round and perform at her best in the field. That's why I feed Daisy Nutrisource high-performance dog food. Nutrisource dog food comes with their good-for-life system that includes four key ingredients that work together to support gut health, heart health, and the overall well-being of our dogs. I have complete confidence that my dog has all of the nutrition to excel in the field and make it through a rigorous hunting season. I've seen it firsthand, and she loves her food. Take it from me and my dog, Daisy. Nutrisource high-performance dog food can help your dog reach their full potential. Find the food that's right for your dog at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. If you're an outdoor lover on the go, then odds are good that you have toys and equipment that you want to haul. Aluma Trailers, well, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa. They have models for nearly any and every hauling need, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say that Aluma trailers tow like a dream. Their trailers are constructed out of lightweight, strong, corrosion-resistant aluminum, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumaklm.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. How did you, well, did your did the breeder send you to this chapter or no, you do your it, own research? Uh, no, it, it was just, she just said, find a local NAFTA chapter. They, they'll have help um, and sign up for a test and run your dog. It wasn't as much, uh, yeah, I think just looking, it was more so what was close to me. Yeah, makes sense. Else. What was going through your mind when you finally took your dog in there? Were you nervous? Were you sweating bullets? Yeah, I, I mean, it's... Yeah, it's really nerve-wracking because you train, 
you know what your dog's good at and you know where your dog may be lacking in skills. What so, was your dog good at? Uh, when he was a puppy, he, I mean, he pointed, which it pointing isn't steadiness. So he wasn't very steady. So he wouldn't, he would take out birds at a young age. But, um, so I knew he would point, I knew he would swim, but they require you to swim for a bumper and he didn't really enjoy bumpers. Really? Yeah. He, he ducks, birds, anything that looked like a bird he'd go in for, but a bumper, it, it's really unappealing for a little puppy hitting stuff. He, he's always retrieved, but he just doesn't, he, he was picky at a young age hmm. of what he would retrieve. How'd you get over that then? How'd you overcome it? We did a force fetch or a trained retrieve. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he was a puppy, I didn't, I just kind of tried my best for the test and he ended up doing it and passing. Um, but, uh, later on in his life, we, we really, uh, went into the trained retrieve force fetch method, which some people don't like have negative connotations to, but it's not pressure can, because you, you put your dog under pressure to, to do something, what do something, even though it might not want to do it. Mm -hmm. And some people think that that's always something extremely harsh on a dog, but it's not always very harsh. It, it's sometimes just holding their mouth closed softly over that bumper that can be considered pressure, you know? Mm -hmm. So just getting through that process. And I think that was another eye opening moment in my training was that, that trained retrieve process. Because after that, I don't think I've ever had a bird lost in the field. It's not like, it just feels good when you know, I've been watching this dog of mine this year. I mean, she, for the most part, steady to shot. I release her. Mm -hmm. I say Daisy fetch, you know, and she'll run over there. Um, or I'll take her to a down bird and we, you know, find it. Yep. Dead bird. Those are the two words. I don't say anything else. Mm-hmm. I don't want to confuse her. Yep. She knows what that means. She instantly goes into this crazy sniffing all in this this tight area. And then yeah. she gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then she gets on it and boom. And her recovery has been 100% this year yep. so far. And oh, that feels amazing where you don't lose a bird. And yeah. that's heartbreaking. Nah, I would Close to heartbreaking, you know, yeah. you get a bird and you can't find it. and It's just, really disappointing. Yeah, like, so when it just dog, it hurts, yeah, a yeah. little bit. Like, you kind of want to just, like, grab your chest and be like, God dang. I know, <laughs> I know. So every time she comes back, I'm like, oh, good job, girl. Yeah. I just can't help but be so yeah. excited. And she's like, all right, where's the next one, you know? So you're, you're in this um, training on your own, but how did you figure out what training method you wanted to go with? Did, was there one in particular that you chose and why? Um, I think that's a good question. Uh, I don't know if I've put a ton of thought into that. Uh, they, I definitely seeked out people that were successful in it. I think that's important is Very. finding people that have been successful in it, listening to them and taking note of everything they have to say, because one thing that's really important with dog training is being consistent. 
you you can't be switching up your training methods halfway through because you're only going to be restarting over and over and over again. So I kind of picked up from a few different people, asked their opinions, asked their opinions along the way, and then kind of implemented what worked for the dog at the time. And it didn't take very long for me personally. I think it was like over the winter, like a two-month process, which kind of sounds daunting, but two months is finished. It's not a a dog bringing back a bird and dropping it at your feet. It's a dog coming to you, sitting by your side, and delivering that bird to hand. Was there a specific, um, you know, like I could, if somebody said, what what I, how did I train Daisy? It's a silent command training system, you know, and I can point to, here's a site, you can look at it, you can Mm -hmm. read it, there's videos out there, and there's information that you can get. What information besides people did you Uh, have? There's, uh, I'm trying to remember the title of the books, but especially for the first year of a dog's life, I think that's probably the most important part of your dog's training career. And it's not necessarily training, it's exposure more than anything else. And there's a book by Joan Bailey, I believe her name is, and she was very early in the NAVDA system. I believe she had where her pointing Griffons and it's kind of a, I, I, I believe I'm probably going to butcher the name of the book, but I believe it's called uh, how to let your dog train itself. Hmm. Um, I'll and, see if I can look it up here. Yeah. And uh, it, it's geared towards a lot of the, the NAVDA testing system for the, the natural ability test. So it doesn't include the trained retrieve, but there's another advanced book that she has as well that I read through as well, which I found to be very beneficial. It has a little bit... Um, How to help gun dogs train themselves? Yep. There it That's is. That's it. Interesting. And it's not very harsh methods at all, like in some of the other... Uh, there's some other books that you can read, and it's very high pressure Mm -hmm. to get your dog to do what it wants. But more than anything, it's getting your dog out on a daily basis or a couple days of the, I like to do three or four days a week personally, but getting them out into the field on wild birds and just letting them figure it out. Um, That's not always accessible to everybody, obviously. And I think that's where NAVDA can really help is getting into scenarios that are maybe unnatural, but beneficial to the dog in its learning progression of, of uh, being a gun dog or a pointing gun dog specifically. Mm-hmm. It's not really, those books aren't designed for re- flushers or retrievers, and I don't have experience in that, but for the pointing breeds, it's really beneficial. It's interesting um, with the pointing breed myself, you know, and then flushing breeds, you know, just how different the training is in the whole process. I yeah. Mean, I go back and forth all the time on some of my techniques and things I've learned. And, um, it's different than somebody with a lab. I mean, there's, yeah, there are scenarios that you would say, no, I don't want my dog to creep an inch. 
Yeah. You know, whereas a flushing dog is like, oh, what's the big deal about having a little yeah. creep in there? I kind of want a little creep. Like, no, not when your dog is 250 yards yeah, away from exactly. you. A little creep means a uh, bird could flush. You uh, don't, you're the flusher. They have zero flush in them is what you really yeah. ultimately want. Exactly. So you've got to this point now with your dog <clears throat> and now you decided, you know, somebody took you out after a sharp tail grouse and you got that and it tripped this trigger inside of you that said, I'm going to see what else is out there? Or when did you, did you actually ever set a goal for yourself to say, I want all these bird species? It was probably more recently than in the, the initial stages. There was one bird that I thought I was never going to get. <laughs> Which one? Uh, the, the gray partridge or Hungarian partridge. Mm -hmm. Some people call them or a hun. Uh, they are very difficult to find in Minnesota. Yeah. They're not... I've asked DNR, wildlife uh, managers, or people in certain areas of Minnesota, like, where should I be looking for? And it's always been, you just got to be lucky. <laughs> That's, I've heard that a lot, too. I saw a Covey last year driving on the road, and it was on private property. Yep. But I'm like, I just it just shook me. I'm like, those are Hungarian partridge. Yep. I want to hunt for them. <laughs> like yeah. They're my favorite bird. I've hunted them around the country, and I've never shot one in Minnesota. Don't know yeah. if I ever will. I, I mean, it's you you got to be lucky. And I was specifically scouting for a sharp tail for the next season while holding a gun in hopes of maybe <laughs> finding some, and that was in northern Minnesota, northwestern Minnesota as well. And we got lucky that day, and it paid off. I And... They have a really big bag limit for Minnesota, surprisingly. It surprises me that you're allowed to take five Hungarian partridge, but most people never see them. Right. Um, and it was a blizzard that day, and I could have definitely hunted down all five out of a covey, but I, that covey would have been left with like two or three birds. Sure. And so I just took the one, and my dog brought it back to me out of the cattails, and I was like... I'm I'm good. I'm going home. <laughs> Did you know that they were there? I knew that they were in the area. Um, from yeah, I I knew that they were in the area. I knew that they kind of overlapped in habitat as well with some of the sharp tail, especially in late December when there's not as much habitat around. And uh, yeah, I actually was walking down. I was about to give up that day. I was like, what am I doing out here? I came up, I went up a day before and no snow on the ground. And then I opened up my weather app that night, which I normally don't really do. Like I'm, if I'm going to go hunting, I'm going to go hunting. And I think it was forecasted for like eight to nine inches of snow that night. And I was like, what? <laughs> and for the rest of You're the day. You're not sleeping so in your truck, are you? No, I, I, I got a I got a little motel hotel type thing that night and I I was like oh no. I got out there to the first place and the wind was tough to walk in let alone having snow on top of it. I hunt in northwest Minnesota regularly and it's comparable to North Dakota. Yeah, the the wind can be mm -hmm. just to a point where it's hard to walk up upwind because you it's like you're carrying more weight. Mm -hmm. it, it's weird, especially if it's December and you got 
a, a coat on, gloves on. Yep. You just feel so restricted, and then you're stomping through drifts and everything else. So I pulled up to a spot, and I was like, you know, I'll just go down this trail. I'm going to walk down to as far as I can get and then get back to the truck and go home. And as I'm starting to reach the end of that trail, I see little tracks in the snow. And I was like, that doesn't look like a sharp tail size footprint to me. And I followed them a little bit. And then my dog creeped into the willows. And then about, it was in there a little bit. And I, I believe he was pointing, but I didn't have visual, but eight to nine birds get up all at once. And I was thinking to myself, I just got to, I just got to find one of those and take a shot. And it, it worked out like it, it fell. Were you by yourself? I was by myself. Yeah. Most of them, most of the other birds were by myself. So do you hunt by yourself a lot? More often than not. Yeah. Why is that? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) I, you enjoy that experience. Yeah. I like being out. It's kind of like meditation in a lot of ways where when you're out alone, you have no other distractions except yourself. There's no other excuses except yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think it can build a lot of um, independence and comfort in your own hunting abilities. And you're not worried about anybody else in the field or taking a safe shot. So it can be easier in a lot of aspects. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it can be a lot less motivating when you don't have another friend to be there and uh, push for what they want as well. Or, sure. but well, I think uh, upland bird hunters that hunt by themselves are far more successful than with other people for the simple reason that sometimes you're just you get in a line when there's other people. You're talking. Mm-hmm. You can, they they know you're there. Yep. Pheasants in particular, my yeah. goodness, you know, and so when you're moving quietly, you're, if you've got a pointing dog that's, you know, hunting with purpose and that dog goes on point, you just sneak right in and you get a nice close shot. Mm-hmm. And before you know it, boom, your bag's full and, and you're like, Damn. yeah, you know, and, and you can sometimes go and do that extra little, like that looks birdie to me over there. It's yep. a little thicker. I'm going to just head that way. Whereas if there's two or three, four people and you've already come up with your plan, you kind of sometimes will just say, better stick to the plan, mm-hmm. you know, and, and walk straight forward. And you miss those little honey holes within a section too. Yeah. And I think you can also doubt yourself sometimes a little bit more when you're with another person whether it's your shooting ability, mm-hmm. maybe there's pressure or nerves to perform with somebody else by your side. And then sometimes you're hunting with somebody and you go around like a, a piece of cover and you're taking one side and the other guy's taking the, the, the opposite side and all the birds fly out to the other guy. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, dang it, I should have been over there. But you, you there's, there's joy. Yeah. I get it. There's, yeah. there's a lot of joy and, in hunting with just your dog. On the opposite end of that, you could be the guy that's on the side. Sure, exactly. Exactly. Birds. So yes. The Onyx Hunt app is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day. I use it on every hunt. Seriously, every hunt. Their app tells me everything I need to know about the lands that I want to hunt and the lands that we can all legally hunt on. 
The app also shows your location on planet Earth and clearly lays out the land boundaries. It tells you information about the type of property you're on, like state land or federal lands or walk-in access properties. It's ideal for scouting before the hunt and during a hunt to help put together patterns. The app also has helpful features that show you the kind of crops that are in fields, which obviously is a big deal for us upland bird hunters. And there's a timber cut layer to help you find the right forest habitat for rough grouse. If you hunt in North Dakota, there's even a layer that lets you know if a property has been posted electronically. These are just a few of the many tools Onyx apps give you. And these maps can even be used in areas without cell coverage. From the palm of your hand, Onyx Maps always help you to know where you stand. The flush. So fast, it hardly seems real. So vivid, the moment freezes in time before erupting in a blur of spurs and feathers. It's why we changed the way upland loads are built with Prairie Storm. Exclusive flight control flex wad technology and a mix of copper plated lead and flight stopper pellets combine to create dense, deadly shot strings through any choke. Longer shots, more power, fewer missed birds, only from Federal. It's the calm before the Thanksgiving rush. Now is the time to get all of your Turkey Day essential shopping done at Walton's during their pre-Thanksgiving sale. From their 7 and 11 pound stuffers to the number 12 grinder and 600 pound scale, they are all deeply discounted. The number 22 grinder that John Tremblay and the Walton's team uses in all their videos, yep, it's $100 off. Must-have accessories such as suction cup feet, waterproof thermometers, and hog ring pliers have been marked down too. Take an amazing $100 off Walton's 50-pound mixer and get the heavy shopping out of the way right now before turkey season. If you order now through November 16th, Walton's guarantees that your purchases will arrive before Thanksgiving. So check out the pre-Thanksgiving sale today at waltons.com. So you, you got the Hungarian partridge. Now... Uh, obviously what was the easiest was pheasant the easiest probably uh i don't know i don't know if i'd say that because pheasants are wily yeah they're so wily i out of the they're more common probably easier to find put up but they can run like the dickens and you're just chasing them and then they're they're flushing 100 yards away from you and you have no opportunity at all i would say probably Woodcock are probably one of the easier birds to get. The most limiting factor of woodcock, in my opinion, if you have a good hunting dog, if you're hunting alone, it's probably a different story without a dog, but um, is the the cover. Mm-hmm. You're just limited in. Well, and, and, and length of season too, let's be honest. Yep. Um, right now, it's just, it could not be better. The timing, mm-hmm. it, so this podcast is October 19th. Uh, Daisy and I were in the woods yesterday and the amount of leaves are just, I mean, from a week ago, they're down. You can see woodcock Mm -hmm. were getting up. I mean, the migration is on. Yep. Woodcock were getting up in what felt like wide open prairie. Yep. Compared to what we were looking at two weeks ago um, when we were trying to take shots in the thick leaves. Uh, So, but they're not going to be here much longer. That's a thing. Like it's, it's a short window. Rough grouse are going to stay. They don't migrate, but obviously the woodcock, it's, if you're interested, you got to go now. Yeah. I I would also recommend people while they're pheasant hunting to, to hunt for woodcock as well. And I don't know if a lot of people know, but in a lot of the willow thickets, the dogwood thickets, uh, where there's moisture on the ground and there's no leaf or grass cover underneath, 
when those woodcock are migrating, they're stopping in all of those spots mm -hmm. because they don't point. always yeah. have, they don't always have the woods cover when they're migrating through. Mm -hmm. And I have had limits on pheasant days of woodcock. Really? Yeah. And it's any particular region in Minnesota that they seem to be more prevalent. They breed in every County in Minnesota. So they're going to be, they, if you have the right cover, if it's dense enough, if, if the ground is open where they can probe for worms or bugs or whatever yep. they need to eat, and it's it's soft and moist ground, then then take some time and walk through it. One, there might be some pheasants piled That's, up in yeah, there. Exactly. And That's then two, if you take your time in there, you'll you'll shoot a woodcock. I did it this past weekend with my buddy um, that got his first pheasant. I shot a woodcock nice. out there as well. Nice. Uh, okay, so. The most recent bird on your list was a spruce grouse. Spruce was, grouse. Is yeah. there any other birds left? Snipe. What do you mean? Left? Well, like no, on your list after, that you've you've harvested no. all of them. Okay, so no. spruce grouse. What? Um, I that was another very difficult one for me, and it. Some people may laugh at that because you could road hunt grouse and put up as many spruce grouse as sure. you want, but to get them under... I wouldn't agree with that. I would say... <laughs> not as many, as many but, want, but... But you can find them. A lot of people get them that way. Yes. Uh, you can find them probably uh, more easily doing it that way, which I I personally wouldn't do. It, it's my own personal ethic, sure. and everybody has their own, but... Uh, the joy of the, the thrill of the hunt is you and your dog going exactly. out and figuring it and out. getting him to retrieve a bird. Point, that, retrieve, yes. Point, ideally. And mm -hmm. I think he did most of them. Like I said, I didn't really see the hunt, but I, yeah. in my dreams, I know he's playing <laughs> he, it. He stopped. <laughs> he stopped just long enough, yes. But that one was also with the help of other people. Um, I wouldn't have been able to do that without uh, Bailey Peterson, if you know who yeah. she is. She mm -hmm. also has a small monster lander. She's... She's extremely knowledgeable. Very. Like it, I mean, I almost, I almost hesitate to give out her name because I know a lot of people contact her about stuff. But we've had her on this podcast before too. Yeah, but and she's a but wealth she's, of knowledge. She's out there all the time, mm -hmm. and it's hard to find other people as dedicated to bird hunting as somebody like a, uh, AJ, her husband, and mm -hmm. Bailey, and. And uh, she was really helpful in giving me cover types because I'm not up there that often. And it's it's a hike for me to get up there. So four or five hour drive, if I'm weekend warrioring it, I only get a couple days, like a day and a half to hunt, hunt hard. And mm -hmm. So after I found, figured out the habitat that they're in, it's just popping into different spots and trying to figure out where it's at. Typical for, at. Typical yeah. for all upland birds. Yeah. It's it, boot leather. You got to get out there. You should not expect to be given a bird. No. Even if somebody helps you and points you in the right direction, there's still a lot of and I, curves too. What, I what surprised you about that bird when you started hunting at the spruce grouse? Well, they're beautiful. They're like one of the more beautiful grouse, really especially are. in Minnesota. They have like very, the males specifically have this very unique color pattern. And then their eyebrows are bright red, bright red. and it doesn't really matter time of year. They're just bright red eyebrows and a dark bird. They just have very, a lot of contrast to them. But I think 
when I was hunting them in the spruce kind of almost boggy areas, you're, you're stomping through this moss that's in the springtime, you're stomping through this moss that's almost a foot deep where it feels like you're walking through snow. Mm -hmm. And then these birds will get up and just like rough grouse, they disappear within a matter of seconds. So you get very fast snapshot shooting on them. I had a few fly up into trees right above me. And the first group of them that I got into, I saw like this big, beautiful male just staring at me through the tree. And I was like, I can't do it. I can't shoot it. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> so I kicked the tree next to it and it flew and I, I just didn't get my safety off. And I was like, I was going to shoot it when it was in the air. Um, my dog had pointed them right before that. I was like, good enough for me. <laughs> the I was hardest shoot shot in upland hunting is a grouse out of a tree. It can be five yeah. feet from you and you're like, dude, get up. Let's, you know, like yeah. I've got a shot in the second it leaves, you know, like yeah. it has that ability to just like, it's easier if they get up off the ground for some reason. Yep. And even though you can see the bird, you're watching it first. They just, they have an ability rough grouse do and yep. spruce grouse are exactly the same. Yeah. And well, and with spruce grouse, you don't really get the advantage of leaves falling down. There's always going to be within the conifer trees, mm -hmm. you're always going to have needles up and maybe a little less dense, lower to the ground where there's not as many branches and stuff. But yeah, I, and then I, I kind of worked that area a lot more and I got into another group and I was able to, to get up, to get birds flushed and shot. And I got a pair of them. And then I, I didn't, I could have hunted that a lot more, but your goal was accomplished. My goal was accomplished. And I know that there's not a lot of data on spruce grouse populations. And I kind of took the same personal ethic that I did with um, the, the gray partridge and that I didn't want, I didn't want a stack of spruce grouse to take mm -hmm. home. I, I kind of wanted just to get that retrieve out of my dog and, and, uh, get to know those birds and where they live and what makes them unique and special. I, when I got mine, it was exactly the same thing. I, the one bird, I got one bird and I just, I felt like that was what I came for. Mm -hmm. I was satisfied. And like you, I, I didn't have this desire to go pile them up. Yeah. It's funny, like a pheasant, <laughs> why yeah. we're like, pile them up, <laughs> you know, but all yeah. these other birds, we just have this, I don't know if it's a different respect for the bird or something aesthetically about them that it's like, I, I'm good there. Yeah. I don't need more, but a pheasant, <laughs> maybe because they're just running jerks well, that there, if you get them, you that, take them. They're that, they taste, pheasant tastes really good yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, there is that too. <laughs> well, and that's almost, you know, like a rough grouse. It's yeah. kind of, yeah. I, I love them so much that I want everyone I can possibly get. Yeah. But I've had that before too, where they're staring at you in the tree and you're like, uh, as soon as you fly, my chances go so low. Like, yeah. well, do I, or do I, you know, I, I turn into like the, the first time I ever picked up a shotgun. Like, I, I don't know how to use it. <laughs> I don't know how to shoulder <laughs> right. it. I don't know right. if you, I don't, there's something about rough grouse, woodcock, spruce grouse, when you're in the woods and you're doing snap shooting where, 
I'm probably not the best person to swing on a bird. <laughs> I'm, I'm really good at just pulling up the gun and as quickly as Don't I, think, just do it. Just do it. Yeah, pull exactly. the trigger. By the time and, you think, it's gone. And that's what I tell people that are new to it as well. It's like, if you see a bird and you can get your gun up, shoot at it. Yeah. Don't waste your time thinking if it's a good shot or not. If there's a tree in front of you, it's coming down. <laughs> I took I took one out. I took one out yeah. yesterday. Yep. Yeah. Grouse got away. I, uh, oh, I got my limited woodcock, but I did not hit a grouse, to, much to the disappointment of my dog. <laughs> and uh, she did a great job. It's been fun. Um, obviously, you, you bagged rough grouse and woodcock, pheasants, Hungarian partridge, sharp-tailed grouse. I, I, one thing interesting... I've hunted sharp-tailed grouse in Minnesota too, and it's a different bird to hunt than if you go because you've hunted chucker, you've hunted you know around the country, but our sharp-tailed grouse are not like Fort Pierce, South Dakota sharp-tailed grouse. Yeah, Minnesota's birds. I've walked some of the most beautiful grass and never seen a bird, and then all of a sudden you go into a willows and mm-hmm. get ready, and they they just burst out of there. Yeah, just popcorn and out like. One, two, three, four, five. They just keep coming in some some instances. Yeah. Uh, I have not had the opportunity to hunt. Um, maybe I've had the opportunity, but I, I haven't hunted North Dakota or South Dakota or uh, Montana for, for sharp-tailed grouse um, or any other. I, I actually haven't hunted those states at all. Um, and next weekend, I'm going to South Dakota for the first time with my father-in-law, which I'm pretty excited oh, about. Oh, it's going to change your world. We're going to hunt pheasant for a few days and then hunt, hopefully, sharp-tailed grouse to wrap up the week. Gotcha. And I'm pretty excited about that. But looking at people's images of where they're hunting sharp-tailed grouse in like Montana or North Dakota, it's foreign to me mm-hmm. because it's more of like a mosaic prairie Minnesota prairie where you have willow patches, dogwood patches and trees, woods. When we hunted sharptail, we were hunting rough grouse as well, which is weird to think about, but you'll get into these tree islands where they'll hang out and forage and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But it's a unique opportunity. It is really cool. And I think that's part of the fun of traveling around and hunting like you've been doing and, and learning as you go. I, I find a lot of joy in that myself. Yeah. It's to me, the bird is just kind of like the culmination of it. Obviously I love to eat them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you did it, you know, like you figured yeah. it out. You did. Yeah. It. I mean, you accomplished this mission and I'm okay. Not being successful right off the bat. I actually enjoy it more because then I want it more. And then I, I, the satisfaction is so much greater when it does happen. Yeah. It, just figuring it out for me is, is one of the, the cooler parts about it. Like yeah. Understanding the birds is a part of the whole process. If it was just given to you where, um, where somebody were to take you or, or something like that, where you're essentially just bringing the gun along. It, it's not as enjoyable to me because it didn't, doesn't seem like I did it. It was more just the help of others, which I also enjoy as well. Right. There's a, there's a factor there that, I mean, we talk about having somebody help us in, mm-hmm. in a lot of these ways and the met, the value of a mentor with yeah, your dog training exactly. and getting you into the right area. Um, so I don't want people to think that that's no. not important. It's no, so it, important. Well, I, I wouldn't have been able to do it with 
people either at least helping me and giving me tips, pointers, what I should be looking for, even with my this own personal little goal that I had for myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it it's in, invaluable. But there, there's also a sense of accomplishment when you can kind of get those tips and implement them yourself and figure out the birds as well. Yeah. Um, l- shorebirds, snipe, yeah. rails. Um, how often are people flushing those birds with they don't that they don't even realize that that's a game bird that they could take? Rail probably more often than snipe. Uh, I know people that do hunt. I know a couple of people that I've heard of hunting snipe in Minnesota, and it's definitely something that people do. It's not as common, but I think that you really need to when you're going out for birds, shorebirds. There's a lot of birds that look like snipe on the shore. Yeah. There's dowitchers, there's sandpipers, there's plovers, and they all look like different sizes of snipe. Uh, I pulled up on a bird two and a half weeks ago, roughly, thinking uh-huh. it was a snipe, but I wasn't 100% certain, so I didn't pull the trigger. Yeah, you dropped the gun. And yeah. <laughs> there, there's a couple tall tale signs for snipe that I have figured out and learned um, is... First, the color pattern. They have some, there's not a, with some birds you get like immature color patterns where they kind of look very drab, not very colorful. Uh, But with snipe, they'll always have these lines running down their back that are more of a yellow color than brown. And then they will have a white belly. More white than than anything. It gets a little mottled in some places, but... uh, so you'll have, that's kind of the basic. They have a very long bill. It's it's much long. For the proportion of the bird size, it's longer than, than you would can see. Can you see them. that, though, when they get up? I mean, that's the thing. You've got a split second. If you're close to them, you, you can kind of tell. They, no, they normally do not stay in groups and run around in groups. So you'll see some of these other birds like yellow legs and sandpipers that will stay in like groups of four or five and then they run the shore bank together before they flush and then when they flush they stay close to the water and they fly low and then they just land very nearby just ahead of you snipe they get up and go almost at like a 45 to yeah 45 degree angle and start shooting upwards and then they'll make a couple key keeking noises where it's like a keek keek. I don't sound terrible trying to mimic it, but they make some, a couple vocalizations where it's a little raspy when they're getting up. And I normally only see them in pairs of two or singles Hmm. and they're not, visible on the shore most of the time. They're tucked kind of in a very light cover that they can crouch in. So do you, do you flush them wild or do does your dog point them? My dog has pointed them. I mean, if you look back at like the development of setters in Ireland and whatnot, they were, they're snipe dogs. They're not in all cases, obviously, but they're devi- designed for snipe. And over there they have Jack Snipe. Here we have Wilson Snipe often called common snipe. Uh, but they look very similar, behave very similarly, and they're in 
similar habitat. It depends a lot on the wind and the cover that the birds are in. If it's light cover um, with a, a moderate breeze to it, they can. What kind of cover are we talking here? Because to me, it feels like it would be. You it's know, pretty flat. You cattails on the edge of ca- between cattails and water on that dry area. If you have an area where it's about 50 feet before the cattails or after the cattails, yeah. and then it's almost, it's in the places that I've hunted, it's easy to, to walk through when you're on the water or on the shoreline, uh, primarily because if it's not easy to walk into, it's almost impossible to walk into. So, mock if it's, <laughs> yeah, you're sinking to your knee, your shoes are coming off in the mud. Sounds terrible. It's it's miserable, and but that's not where you're going to find the birds. You can sometimes, if it's dense enough for them to stand on top of it and go through it, you can find them in those areas, but they need, they don't need as dense as cattails. Uh, it needs to be a little more open so they can kind of run, um, and dart in and out of those spots. Uh, another place that you can oftentimes find them in the migration is beaver dams um in the north woods you can find them sometimes there uh also in dried out pond beds hmm. so, so this being a dry year is probably prime condition drier years i have found success mainly because the shores pulled away from the cattails mm-hmm. there's a little bit of new growth that you see in there that uh is not so dense that they can't run on and then your dry pond beds where they're not mucky so you can walk on top of them and i had a lot more pointing opportunities on my dog when uh the pond beds were dry because you have a lot more you don't have like the waves and the water I don't know if that messes with scent or anything. I'm not sure. Well, I would imagine if, if there's water, it's taken away yeah. 100% of the scent. And and he was pointing pretty regularly on those birds. But my dog's very experienced at Woodcock. I think that's also a shorebird. It just doesn't stay on the shore. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and I think that if your dog is very successful at Woodcock, I don't think that it would be hard to get them to start being successful on snipe. Hmm. You just have to find that balance of, of uh, the habitat where it's not too dense, not too thin. Sure. Are rails similar in habitat? Rails are not. Yes. Well, yes, they are similar in habitat. I normally find rails walking into the areas for snipe in those dense cattails. So you have to break through some dense cattails or dense other cover. They're in a lot denser cover and they're smaller than a snipe. They're, they're bigger than an English sparrow, but not by much for Sora rail and Virginia rail are about the same size, maybe a little bit larger. How did you know once you started hunting them when you were like, that's definitely what I'm after. Cause you have to, take one before you really know for sure, don't you, that that's the bird? Or um, I suppose you did a lot of birding. Yeah, I, I, I've I, always loved birding. I think everybody, especially hunters, bird hunters, 
are in a way a birder. Like either even if you're taking a bird, you're you revere that bird. You like that bird. Mm-hmm. You like seeing them. You'll stop and watch one if you have the opportunity. Like you're, you're right. Absolutely. You're, you're, if I see a grouse, I stop. If I see a pheasant, I yeah, stop. Yeah, you. You're a birder. You like yeah. looking at birds. Ducks, geese, yeah. It just there's happens to be a season where you can take them as well. And there I think there's so many other cool birds out there as well, even like within waterfowling. Like mm-hmm. look at how many different species of ducks you can take and how variable they are and all of them are cool in their own ways. Right. And every th- I don't think there's a bird out there, a waterfowl bird out there that at least one person doesn't really like. Sure. You know, Um, but for rail, it's, it's a little bit of knowing where they're going to be. So when you're identifying birds, it's not always by a clear picture. If you see a pheasant flying the profile of it and you only see the silhouette, you know, it's a pheasant. And you know a rooster versus a hen, usually, it, too. Yeah, you can see the profile, and and uh, with any flight pattern on birds, they're all, very, they're all very different. Think of a woodcock, how it gets up and flies away versus mm-hmm. a grouse. Even if it kind of sounds like a grouse getting up, if you see it flying away, you know, oh, that's, that's a woodcock. Mm-hmm. And you just apply those, those concepts to, to other birds as well how they fly, um, and rail, that's the main identifiers, how they fly. They always have their legs drooped down like they're a shot bird almost. Huh. Their legs are hanging to the ground, and they fly like they're, like, they migrate the all the way down to the coastlines as well in the southern United States. But if you see a rail fly, you, you would question yourself, how does that bird make, make it? it all the way down there? Because <laughs> they will fly about 10 feet when you flush them and then you'll never find them again. <laughs> really? They, they just run that tight. They, oh, they just run. run. You, your, your dog. I don't think I've put up the same bird twice when I, when I've hunt for rail. I'm kind of fascinated by these shore birds right now. I mean, you're very knowledgeable on them and it, it to me seems like it's something that I want to try now. Rail are a lot easier than snipe. Really? But the shooting opportunity, you have to know where your dogs are at because they don't get up very high off the ground. So you don't want to be shooting where you don't know where your dog's at. And you get a very brief window to, to shoot them. But it's, I'd say it's m- more reasonable to go out for them because you don't have to be in that perfect little weather window that you have to with snipe where you kind of want to dry a year or the cover rail are going to be in the dense stuff. They're always going to be there. It's just a matter of putting them up. When you go out after rails, what is like, I mean, if you see one, is that good? If you see 50, is it? I normally see a half a dozen. Okay. Normally. And snipe? Snipe. It depends. I can see hitting them is the difficult part. Sure. They're the name sniper. was derived from people's ability to shoot snipe out of the air because they, they're kind of like a dove, but a little bit more acrobatic. They just kind of twist and turn. So I'll see on opener. I normally go out September 1st on opener because I'm itching to get out mm-hmm. with my dog and hunt. Extends birds. the season too. Yeah, exactly. It's hot. You have to 
be cognizant of that, especially with your dog getting to some of the spots because I walk in, I don't boat in, but, uh, I'll see 12 to 20 snipe on a good year on opening day, hmm. but being able to shoot them is a totally different story. How do they taste? A lot like a woodcock. Okay. Yeah. A lot like a woodcock. They're besides the size. I don't know. They're smaller than a woodcock pretty considerably, almost half the size. Uh, but, um, so you have to get a few of them to have yeah, an appetizer. It's kind of like doves when you go after yep, doves, exactly. you want to, you know, hopefully you bring back enough to. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Well, okay. So it, can you look back at this journey that you've been on over the last couple of years? You've, you've taken these birds and I have to imagine you've learned something about your own self, your dog, your hunting skills. What stood out to you? And are you glad you did it? Definitely glad that I did it. I think everybody in any aspect of their life should have goals. Um, I mean, whether it's your career, your, your, uh, within your hobbies, outside of hunting, training, like if you don't have goals, you're not, it's, it's a lot harder to, to achieve something that you kind of aspire to do. Um, you don't always complete your goals. And I wasn't necessarily thinking that I would, especially with how difficult some of these birds are. But it, I, th I think as you get older, you kind of learn that just trying something, you can surprise yourself and get something, you can do something that you maybe didn't know that you could do. Um, and learning that... Uh, and I think that's really beneficial because once you start learning, hey, just because I've never done it or I haven't tried it doesn't mean that I couldn't get good at something like that. Sure. And it's just kind of just rewarding to know that you can go out and achieve your own personal well, goals. Well, yeah. I mean, look at you got you you picked up this dog, this puppy. Mm -hmm. You trained it yourself. Mm -hmm. You've hunted all these birds in in the state. You've been in places where some people might never want to hike. And yeah, and you've come out of there feeling pretty dang good about yourself. I yeah, bet. a lot of confidence. Yeah, it definitely a confidence booster, and I think that can that can go in that you, you can relate those experiences to other aspects of your life. It's not just hunting. It's not mm -hmm. just dog training or birding or whatever you want to do. It it it's just I think it it was a goal that I kind of set not. I was very vigilant on trying. There's multiple years that I looked for Hungarian partridge. There was multiple years that I looked for spruce grouse. Maybe it wasn't like the whole season of looking, mm -hmm. but made trips for made them. trips specifically for 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 those types of birds. And yeah, like you you have to you're not always going to be successful, and that's also a good learning experience. Like, well like we talked about earlier. Yeah. yeah, that's great. You you're going to learn something from being unsuccessful, whether it's I'm never going there again. I'm never trying that again <laughs> yeah. to, to, uh, to getting real close. And then mm -hmm. once you get real close, you see a bird, you see a bird two years in a row, but you don't shoot it. You're just, you're amp. You're like, I'm going to get out there and I'm going to do it. But yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I don't know. Like what's next for you then? Uh, I've been trying to make it a point of, taking other people out that 
either they're hunters and they haven't uh, shot a bird, a specific species or something, just trying to to help them. I mean, you have to be an ambitious person for me to want for me to want to take you out. Uh, but because I think you, I don't want to just take somebody out just for them to be successful. I want them to be out for their own personal, because they're ambitious to do something. Sure. But I think that's with a lot of things, but I, I, I really enjoy taking people out, getting their, their first birds. Um, I'd like to shoot, a pheasant grouse and woodcock all in the same day, which I know a lot of people have probably done, but I haven't, I haven't been able to do that quite yet. Add and sharp tail grouse to that too then. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. It's doable. It's doable. Yes. <laughs> uh, last question for you. What advice do you have for somebody that uh, might be looking to set a goal for themselves this year? I, I personally spend a lot of time doing research online, research, mm-hmm. wh- whatever resources you have. Um, look for people that are successful and, and try to pick their brains. Don't be afraid to ask questions and, and just go do it. Just try it. Even if you're not successful, you might find success in something else. Sure. Like going out looking for Hungarian partridge. Maybe you're successful with a lot of pheasants or successful with a lot of sharp tail. Like don't, don't be scared just to try, just try it, get out there and have fun. Like enjoy the moments that you're spending out there because they could be memories that you have forever. Right. And the season goes fast. So don't miss a chance. (laughs) (laughs) Take somebody with, take somebody with and uh, let them see your misses. Yeah. (laughs) And laugh about it. Yeah. I appreciate you coming in today. Thank you for having me. You got to get going. Uh, Good luck with the rest of your hunting season. You as well. And yeah, it's here. It's happening. It's, it's prime time out there. I know. Yeah. If, if you're not getting out now, you really need to be. You need to be. Do it. And the, <laughs> the bird hunters are the people listening to this, so they're hunting. Yeah. They're probably on the way to the field right now. So good luck to you. Get a bird. Share a picture with us. We'd love to see it. We'll be back next week. I'm going to be in North Dakota. I'll, I'll be, in, I'll be I'll, in South Dakota next week. Good luck in South Dakota. I'll give you a live report from the field in <laughs> North Dakota. I'll talk to you then next week on the next episode of the Flush Podcast. Flush Podcast.